you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Susan Rogers is one of the most successful female record producers of all time. Yet her journey to working with Prince during his iconic Purple Rain era and other award-winning musical artists, including the Bare Naked Ladies and Rustard Root, wasn't always clearly laid out. Today, Susan shares how her enthusiasm opened the first doors for her career in music and how she was able to make her real mark in a male-dominated industry. Plus, having studied music cognition and psychoacoustics and earning her doctorate in psychology. Yeah, I know, she's, she's kind of a show-off. But she's humble, and she's awesome, and she's aware, and she has a lot to teach us not only about music, but about life. So my friends, without further ado, turn up the radio a little bit louder. You'll want it today for my friend, and now yours, her name, Susan Rogers. Susan, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me here this morning. It's an honor. It's a a pleasure to talk with you. Um, So thank you so much for this invitation. Like I was saying to you before we recorded, I'm kind of fanboying out today. I'm a a huge fan of your work and quietly behind the scenes, you are behind some of the biggest projects, biggest albums that uh, are out there in the marketplace. Mm. And your name that those of us who truly love music, we know, but some of our listeners actually may not yet know the name Dr. Susan Rogers. So I want to make sure that you have an opportunity of introducing yourself to them if you and I were to bump into each other in a grocery store and I, I, I said, oh, Susan, hmm, sounds familiar. Susan, what do you do for a living? How would you respond to that? I suppose I would say I'm a college professor, but the reason I'm a college professor is that I've been a record maker as a producer and engineer for 22 years, and I'm a PhD in music perception and cognition. And then they would probably say, how in the world did you get into that kind of work? And so that's what you and I are going to spend the next few minutes unpacking (laughs) together. How in the world did you get into this kind of work? You grew up loving music and you Mm -hmm. wrote about this powerful experience as a young person at a concert in L.A. Talk about that concert and uh, talk about what brought you into that room in the first place. Oh, gee. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up in Southern California, Anaheim, California, to be specific. And like so, so, so many children, I loved music. Uh, Many kids, many kids do. And some gravitate more towards sports or other things. But uh, for me, it, it was music. 
anyway, I, I uh, had a, somewhat of a rough childhood. I had great parents, great, great, great. But my mother passed away after a long, long illness. And that was just so tough on the family. And uh, we were all just kids, my brothers and I. So in order to I mean, my brothers and I, we were, we were kind of, you know, it was every man for himself. So I, I made the foolish mistake to get married when I was 17 years old. Um, that wasn't too smart, but, but this ended up being a really good thing. I married a really horrible guy, a really mm. bad guy. If I had married a good man, I'd still be with them. I'd have children and I'd live somewhere in Southern California and I'd have a very different life, but I married a bad guy. So... This bad guy gave me permission to attend my very first concert. I was 20 years old, and it was Led Zeppelin at the Forum in Los Angeles. And I was there with my friends from work. And I had promised the guy I was married to that I'd be home by 1030 because I didn't know it said on the on the ticket. It said it starts at eight o'clock. So I thought, OK, well, that's probably pretty good. You know, I play for two hours. I'll be home by 1030. Oh, boy. They didn't even take the stage until nine o'clock. So there I was sitting up there with my friends from work in the rafters. Led Zeppelin was on stage. I can still picture it. And there's Robert Plant and there's Jimmy Page and there's John Bonham and John Paul Jones. And oh, it just was the most exciting thing I'd ever, ever experienced in my life. And I keep looking at my watch because I got to go. Now, what what would happen if I didn't leave is uh, uh, there'd be hell to pay. Uh, th this, this fellow was not a good guy and it would be very bad. So uh, I decided, oh, my God, this is the most embarrassing thing, but I have to go. I have to leave in the middle of this concert. And as I'm walking out of the forum in Los Angeles, which seats 14,000 people, it's where the Lakers play and all that. I'm walking out and I made a little vow and I looked up at the rafters at the forum and I thought to myself or I said to myself, all right, I'm going to leave. But I swear I'm coming back here someday and I'm going to mix live sound. And no one's going to tell me to leave. Now, <laughs> it was it was ridiculous because I didn't yeah. know any bands. I didn't know any musicians. I didn't know anyone in the music business. And I didn't work in the music business. How the hell is this going to happen? But I left. And then eight years later, it did happen. I uh, <laughs> Shortly after that, that fateful concert, I left the person I was married to. I started out on my journey to become just the only thing I could be that would allow me to participate where gender wasn't a barrier. Mm. A lot of bands then in the late seventies, they didn't want women producing or engineering or mixing their records, but it didn't matter if you were female, if you were an audio technician, because the technician repairs the equipment. If you can repair the equipment, who cares? So I started my career as an audio technician, got my dream job. Uh, after I'd been a tech for about five or six years, I learned that my favorite artist in the world, Prince, was looking for a technician and, you know, game over. I, that, that's my gig. I'm, I'm made for that gig. I got that gig and um, we were on the Purple Rain Tour and we played the forum. We played the forum and I, I, I wasn't mixing front of house, but in my view, I had an even more prestigious gig. I was recording the band in the mobile recording truck, which was hooked up to the stage and parked behind the venue recording it for posterity and so uh, <laughs> I was aware of those rafters I was aware and at soundcheck I took the cassette of our soundcheck into Prince's dressing room and you know let him know let him check it out and give me his, his tips and his instructions and then I had to tell him a short version of that story and I had to say to him I just want to thank you Prince because you're the one who made this dream come true 
I don't know. I just never forget the look on his face because Prince, as as I believe all celebrities have to do, uh, had this veil, this protective veil, uh, uh, in front of himself to to protect his private psyche yeah. from the constant demands of fame. But you'd see you'd see that face break through that veil. And that was one of those moments. And I realized I'm looking at a kid whose dream is also coming true. He, he, he never thought something like this would happen. So there we were. Uh, uh, it, it, ha- it happened. Woof, man, I, there's so much you shared there. So I'm going to walk you back to the beginning of the song and have you slow play this a little bit, uh, a little bit more mm. for me. Great family, great mom and dad. Mom, mm. you said, passes away. I think you were 14 years old when that happens. She'd been sick for a while before that. Talk about the illness and talk about music's role in helping a little girl manage a very painful time in her young life. Yeah, this was tough. My mother was a wonderful person, just a wonderful person, but she was stricken with breast cancer when I was maybe seven or eight, had a double mastectomy had four children and um, it was just hard on her body. And then when I was 11 years old, uh, she was diagnosed with bone cancer. Just, you know, she was just tough as nails and had a heart of pure gold and was loving and kind, but a person can only hang on for so long. And um, from the time I was 11 until I was 14, those three years, um, she was in and out of the hospital so many times and she loved her children madly and hung on. (laughs) She hung on. This was, this is uh, late sixties. She passed away in 71, February Mm. of 71. So the the medicine wasn't as advanced as it is today, but boy, she hung on uh, as, as long as she could. My, my poor father worked three jobs to keep his family together, his day job. He worked a night job as a janitor on Saturdays. He worked as a janitor. And then uh, on Sundays, he worked at the motorcycle races as a starter and they were you know they were good people to provide for their children and make sure that we had some semblance of some some real home life you know yes. in the midst of this but um the role music served for me is uh as a saying that just says uh, sometimes when someone's hurting all you have to do is be the dog just be the dog just mm. sit next to them and just just be the dog you don't have to solve their problem you just sit next to them while they have a problem and music can do that. I'd play the radio and whenever, whatever little bits of money I had here and there from birthdays or babysitting, I would buy my 45s. This is, you know, back when we sold 45s, I'd buy those singles and I'd, I'd put that, that music on. And the music didn't have to solve my problem. It didn't have to describe, here's what you do when you're an adolescent and your mother is dying. That, it was, that was okay. All it had to do was emotionally express life and rhythmically, powerfully express power and persistence and express passion and depth of feeling. And that was enough. Mm. Uh, I bonded to it very, very deeply in those days. Be the dog. I I have actually never heard that expression. And Mm. we do a lot of work uh, where I I would have bumped into it. So I, Mm. I, I have not. I love that. And that's so important for us to recognize the idea of showing up for people and being the dog the and dog. sometimes allowing music to be the dog. Yeah. When I look, 
so I went through and you and I talked briefly about this, but I was burned as a child and spent months in hospital and, and music was incredibly important in healing for me. As my mom and dad would leave every night, that's a very heartbreaking time for a child mm -hmm. to have their parents walk out on them one way or another. And they would always play <laughs> music. And one of the songs they would play, one of the, one of the cassettes was Chariots of Fire, kind of an unusual thing, but <laughs> one of the things they would play. And we all know that one song, Chariots of Fire, but there were others in there, Oh wow! of course. And when, when, um, when I hear that music today, it brings me back immediately to a hospital oh, wow. room in the mid eighties. And I remember the sounds and I remember the feeling and I remember the pain and I remember the hope. Is there a song as your mother was sick and uh, going through all that she was going through and dad's working and your brothers are doing what they're doing that when you hear it today, you immediately go back to the late sixties or early seventies. Oh yeah. It grips my heart to, to even say it, but it, a wonderful, wonderful track by uh, Flo and Eddie happy together. Wow. Imagine me and you. I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. Love that record by the great Flo and Eddie. Yeah, that, that takes me right there. This is a sad and personal story, but I think your listeners are used to that. My mother came home from a doctor's appointment when I was about 11 years old. You know, you could tell there's something in the air. There was something wrong. She, she, wasn't, she wouldn't say what it was because she, she wanted to uh, preserve her children's innocence. Yeah. But I, as the oldest, I knew oh, something's up. And the phone rang unexpectedly. It was her brother calling from Indiana and she didn't talk to him more than, you know, once or twice a year because long distance phone calls were expensive in those days, but she took that call. And the weird thing was she took it in another room. So I, I knew something was up. So I snuck onto the extension and I listened and I heard her tell her brother that uh, she had bone cancer and it wasn't, wasn't looking good. And, and I, I sneakily hung up the phone. I didn't want her to know I had spied on her. But I had that 45, I had it recently and I, and I put it on and I just played it over and over again. Yeah. And it helped me, mm, it grounded me into that external world. You know, it's so easy for us to go into our own heads and inside our own heads can be a really dark and scary place. And it can also be a very, well, how do I put this, an unreal place, especially for children. You can create scenarios in your head that really don't have much to do with reality or that perhaps involve some wrong thinking. So having that record be there, having that record was, gave me kind of a, a something to reach out to and something to stabilize myself to and something I could play over and over and over again and appreciate its consistency. This record's always going to be here. This record's always going to be here. And it's marvelous that a three and a half minute pop song can do something like that. Whew, man, I just so appreciate you sharing that. And uh, I'm glad you found music and I'm glad you've been able to live in this industry now for, for the mm -hmm. last uh, few years. We'll put, put it that way, Susan. You've been there for a little while. And yet the fact that you got into it in the first place is, is shocking. That, that you were able to land on your feet and to eventually accomplish what you have. So slow play us through your, your resume, if you will. What was your first job? What were, was your role and responsibilities in it? Yeah, I moved to Hollywood. I left the guy I was married to, moved to Hollywood with a girlfriend. At this point, I was 21 years old and she wanted to marry a rock star. 
And I think eventually she did. We lost touch with each other. But what I wanted to do was serve music. I wanted to serve this thing that had been my companion and my friend for my young life. I saw an ad in the back of the LA Times, the newspaper that said audio trainee wanted. And I got that gig. (laughs) There, There was a company called Audio Industries right in the heart of Hollywood. And they sold and serviced recording consoles and tape machines. So they hired me, they saw I had enthusiasm and boy, is that, uh, now that I have students, I recognize how valuable motive and desire and enthusiasm are. People will pay you for your motivation and your desire and your enthusiasm, it's worth money. Well, I had plenty of that, so they hired me. I was naive as naive can be. I didn't know one end of a battery from the other, but I wanted this so badly that, I, uh, I I bought the books as my, uh, I had a sweet boyfriend at the time. And he, he said, uh, he said, we may not be able to afford to go to college, but we can afford to buy the textbooks. He was absolutely right. Neither one of us had money for college, but we could get those textbooks and we could study on our own. And one of the things I learned, uh, this is a great tip. I didn't have much money at all. And I was just getting minimum wage at this company, but uh, I learned that the U.S. Army makes really great electronics manuals uh, because they're training recruits. So I called up the local Army recruiting station and I, I said, I, I lied. I said, I'm 16 years old and I'm in high school. And when I graduate from high school, I'm going to join the Army and I want to study electronics. Can you send me your electronics manuals? And the guy said, well, sure, little lady, you just give me your address and send me $1.75 for postage and we'll send it to you. And they did. It was a big cardboard box of uh, electronics manuals from basic DC principles all the way up to microwave technology. And this was 1978. So they sent me the electronics manuals and I just studied, 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 worked uh, for audio industries until eventually after about three years, I was hired away by the band Crosby, Stills and Nash. They owned a recording studio up the street and they wanted a full-time technician. So I went and joined them. And when I was there, I I got to see a lot of sessions. A lot of great artists came through those studio doors like the Eagles and Bonnie Raitt and Art Garfunkel came through, never Paul Simon, but Garfunkel came through and Stephen Bishop and some wonderful artists uh, worked in this in this place. All of that led up to my being hired by Prince. So it's a perfect segue. What was it about you that those folks, Crossy Stills and Nash and others found to be quality enough that they wanted to work with you? Well, I was smart, but uh, I think it was that 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 incredible desire, the, the the drive and the motivation. While writing this book, this is what it sounds like. I did a little bit of research on the difference between liking and wanting. So when we're making records, and when I'm teaching students about making records, I tell them that you play your record for somebody, and they say, "I like that. It's good. I like that." That will not lead to record sales. Liking is merely a cognitive appreciation. Yeah, it's good. I like it. The reaction you want is, I want that. I need that in my life. Because when you want something, you will work and sacrifice to get it. Mm. So I think uh, they saw how deeply I wanted to make a contribution. And, And when the want is deep, you know that the sacrifices will be deep. I'm not going to work there for a month and say, you know, you know what, this job is really kind of boring to me. No, I will sacrifice. I'll give up a lot 
in order to have this thing that I want. Uh, and, and, and I have found over the course of my life that uh, that has always worked out for me. If I want it badly enough, I've, I've often I'd usually get it. Can, can you, you know, and we're going to kind of just dance the timeline here a little bit. Can you make students want and can you make them hungry for knowledge and learning and effort? Or is that something that's innate and some have it, some don't? Oh, now this is an interesting question. I really believe that every person is their own kind of work of art and every person should be what they privately want to be. I don't ever like to have a, a student tell me that his parents want him to be something mm. or he believes he should try to be something. I, 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 don't, I don't want that. I, I, I want the students, I mean, just as we do as a record producer does in the recording studio, when, when you're producing an artist, you don't go to their songs and apply a style like a coat right. of paint. You, you, that's not what you do. What you do is you find the inspiration for the music inside them and you grow that original inspiration. That's the best plant you're going to have in that garden is if you start with that seed and grow what that seed wants to be. Uh, I'll tell you a brief anecdote. There was a, a student whose name was Connor and he was a wonderful student, really wonderful, one of our top kids. And uh, right after he graduated, he came to see me. We had lunch together and I could tell something's off with Connor. He just wasn't making good eye contact. Some, 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 something's going on. He was talking kind of nervously about his plans post-graduation. Now that's not unusual. They all talk about their plans post-graduation, but what was unusual is Connor wasn't making eye contact. So lunch wrapped up and I we hadn't gotten to the root of it. So I said, let's meet a second time. So we met a second time. And again, we're sitting across the table from each other. He's not he's not being forthcoming. So I said, Connor, I'm going to ask you a question right now. I want you to answer immediately with no pauses. Answer me this question right now. What do you want? Mm. He said, I want to watch TV with my girlfriend. And he started to cry. <laughs> Turned out Connor was in love. Connor was in love. And all this time, this whole time at Berkeley, he'd been thinking, I need to graduate. I need to move to Los Angeles. I need to get a job at a recording studio. This is the path I've been telling everyone since I was a little kid. I'm going to be a recording engineer. My family, my friends, everybody knows this is what I'm going to do. I, I can't not do that now. I, 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 his girlfriend was, was a grad student at Boston University, and, and, and he want, what he wanted was to stay in Boston and wait for her and and marry her and 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 build a life together and so I, I, I'm so glad that that happened because I had the chance to say to him, Connor, get what you want, get what you want. Why wouldn't you? Life's too short. Life is too short, and you've per been pursuing well what you've wanted. Yeah. You wanted to be involved in music. You wanted to hang out and party eventually with a guy who lives just a little bit north of where I am here in St. Louis on the Mississippi River, mm -hmm. way up there in the Twin Cities. There was a fellow who was rocking and rolling named Prince. What, what was it about Prince that you found so motivating? Uh, in the book, I write about seven dimensions of music listening and how we each have a sweet spot in those seven dimensions. And the dimensions refer to regions of the brain that can independently respond to music. So anyway, I was sitting on a bus. I didn't have money for a car early in my audio industries career, but I'm, I'm, I'm on the bus and I'm on Sunset Boulevard right across from Hollywood High, 
Sunset and Highland. And his kid sitting in the back of the bus with a boombox on his lap. And I heard uh, Prince's first single called Soft and Wet. And right away I recognized, oh, there's something about this artist. There was the novelty. There was the rhythm. There was something about his uh, the timbre of his voice, something about the melody. And it, it, it matched a lot of sweet spots in my listener profile. So I stayed on that bus to hear the DJ come on and say who that artist was. So I was first, I was first intrigued uh, with, with his first single. And after that, I, I bought all of his records and um, saw him in concert several times. And if I had written on a piece of paper, someone had asked me in 1983, write down your dream job. What would be your fondest dream? It would have been to work for Prince. And then it happened. But that's the remarkable thing. I mean, all of our listeners have had these wild dreams of something they wanted to do or a place they wanted to visit or a person they wanted to meet. And very few can then say, and it happened. I I think many of our dreams come to pass. And yet many of our dreams we pass on. We just keep moving onward from there. The fact that you fell in love with him on that bus, that you listened to everything that he created and produced and sung out, and then you have an opportunity of traveling away from Los Angeles out to Minneapolis and to work with Prince. What do you think it is about your life or that passion and wanting the universe, God, that allowed you to eventually leave Hollywood and produce and work with Prince? Well, you know, chance is always a factor. It's always a factor. But when you look at the statistics, I put myself where luck could find me. Mm. I was in Hollywood. If I had been an audio technician in Omaha, Nebraska or Boise, Idaho, luck wouldn't have found me there. Prince told his management, get me a technician and make it someone from New York or LA because he wanted someone who was really immersed in in the pro audio industry. And I was. Uh, Another thing was that in in the pro audio industry in Hollywood, you know, a lot of people who know people. So I was a rare bird. There weren't that many young female audio technicians around the world. I think you could count us on one hand. So uh, I had, it was known that I was out there. It was also known that Prince liked working with women. I was in the right place. I knew people who knew people. And I learned through the grapevine, Prince is looking for a technician. Now, you know that I'm, I'm a scientist. So I'm always going to want to look for I'm going to look at the statistics and look at what makes sense in terms of of an explanation. But I know all that said, just how remarkably fortunate I was. I do want to say, though, you know, when it comes to dreams, because I have I have students and they're all about dreams, the dreams of a life in music. And you're in the classroom and and that's what we talk about is their dreams. We have to consider the possibility that. You don't always get the dream you want. Sometimes you get the dream you didn't know you had. Like Connor, um, sometimes it might not work out that he gets his dream of becoming a a record maker. Maybe he'll get the dream of 
having a great wife and great kids and a great job and having love and being happy. That's a different dream. Not might not be the one he planned on, but it might be the dream that's better than what he planned on. Beautiful response. There are some folks that I've met just through my work that when I'm in their presence, I realize I'm in the presence of like a great person, a known person, a famous person mm-hmm. sometimes, or just a remarkable human being. You have been listening and looking up to Prince since that ride on the bus years earlier, and here's your chance to meet him live. What, what was it like for you the very first time you met Prince physically? And, and, and as you get ready to answer that, Maybe one of our listeners tuning in from somewhere around the country or somewhere around the world has never heard the name Prince. So you may want to back into the answer by sharing with them who Prince was, why you were so enamored by that person, and then what that first physical encounter was. Mm. So Prince Rogers Nelson is his full name, achieved something that is mind-bogglingly rare. Mm. He's a young man. Uh, the son of a of a jazz pianist, a, a, un, an unaccomplished jazz pianist named John Nelson. Prince uh, grew up in North Minneapolis, Minnesota. In the ni- he was born in the 1950s, and he was a young man in the 1970s. Prince came from a difficult childhood. His parents divorced. He lived with his mother and his stepfather, and his stepfather and mom were very, very abusive to him. They used to lock him up in his room and he was just a little boy. They'd lock him up and he'd have musical instruments in there. Sometimes his dad's piano and he taught himself to play. So Prince, in order to escape this life, worked like a fiend to learn to write and play and sing and record. And he became, in his teens, a master of piano and guitar and bass and drums and writing. (laughs) We say a master of melody, a master of rhythm, and a vocal performance that would just curl your hair. It's so (laughs) astonishing. Incredible range. Anyway, through an impossible force of will and a little bit of luck, Prince was able to get signed to a major record contract when he was 18 years old, and he embarked on his career. After his first record, it was determined that he would never have a producer again. He was going to produce his own records. By the early 1980s, when I went to work for him, Prince was single-handedly at the same point on the Billboard pop charts as Michael Jackson. Now, Michael Jackson, as you know from the Jacksons, grew up in a family that groomed him from age five to be a pop star. He had older brothers, he had a dad, he had a record label, he had the Supremes, he had all this coaching and training and support and guidance and help and people who wrote songs for him and played songs for him and put him in front of the microphone so he could sing them. Not to take anything away from Michael Jackson's talent, but to just say that Prince did the exact same thing on his own, on his own. So that's one of the reasons why Prince was so extraordinary. Mm. And uh, when I met him, he had just turned 25 years old. He was about to embark on his sixth studio album at the age of 25. He was a multimillionaire at this point. He had employees. And yet that man had one of the strongest work ethics, uh, perhaps the strongest work ethic I've ever known. Prince was all about the work, all about the work. He wasn't in this for the fame or the money. 
he was a musical being and he lived to express himself musically. The first time I met him, um, I was hired to come to, to Minnesota and uh, Prince lived in a, a split level, a, a modest split level home uh, on a dead end street in Chanhassen, Minnesota, where uh, his Paisley Park Studios is today. And anyway, he lived in this modest home, a four bedroom family home. And downstairs in this home was where the master bedroom was. And across the hall from the master bedroom was his home studio, just a, like the size of a child's bedroom. That was the home studio. So the first thing I had to do when I went to work for him was install a new console and fix a tape machine in his home studio. And I did all that and I still hadn't met him. I could hear him upstairs. He was rehearsing for the Purple Rain movie. So I can hear him with his band and they're, they're having conversations and they're laughing and they're dancing and they're playing music. So finally finished up my work. And he came down the stairs to uh, ask me questions. He didn't even introduce himself. He just came down the stairs and he stood a few steps above me. I was on the landing and he just started asking, is this done? Is that done? And have you looked at this? And, and then he says, okay, we'll come back tomorrow and turn around, go up the stairs. And I, I just realized I, I can't let this start like this. I can't let this start like this. So he turned around to go up the stairs and I, I stopped him. I said, Prince, he turned around and says, yes. And I stuck my hand out to shake hands with him. And I said, I'm Susan Rogers. Just to let him know, this is a temporary social contract. You hired me and you can fire me at any time. I agreed to take a job and I can quit at any time. That's who we are to each other. But this is temporary. On a deeper level, we're human beings. And first and foremost, you're going to see me as a human being. You're going to know my name and we're going to acknowledge that we're workmates and we're not equal in that level. You're the boss. I'm the employee. But on a human level, we're equal. And, and that worked out well. He, I think he liked that. He smiled. <laughs> he smiled. And there was something about that handshake and the girl who extended her hand and introduced herself to him that he became enamored with. And, I don't uh, know. He, he was he was tough to work for, but we did we did have a closeness. We had a closeness. For how long did you work with Prince? It was over four years. I had passed my four year anniversary um, after a few months after that is when we reached a parting of the ways. He had opened Paisley Park Studios, so now he had a big complex, and he could have a staff of engineers, not just one person facilitating his record making. Uh, so his whole methodology, his way of working changed. That was a good time for me to take my leave. So we'll come back to that, you taking your leave in a moment, but did you prefer the studio work or the stadium work with Prince? Oh, the studio work. Yeah. I mean, the touring was fun, but I didn't have as big a role on tour. I would either record the shows if, if they were the major cities, or if we were not in a major city, I would, I stood stage left I was there to repair the the drum machine rig if it should go down. Don't know. I didn't have as big a role on tour. What I what I would often do with him on tour is uh, this is this is so damned remarkable. No other artist, no other artist does this. So most artists, when they do sound check, they take 20, 30 minutes tops. Sometimes they just walk on, just check, play their instrument for the sound guys, just to make sure, yeah, it's working, set it back down, and then they go backstage to wait for the show but not yes. prince prince would take four hour sound checks because he loved playing so much if he was awake he wanted to have a musical instrument in his hands and if he had an instrument in his hands he wanted to be recording so that meant i needed to be with him pretty much all the time certainly every day so he'd do a four hour sound check 
play a three and a half hour set that night. And then after that, it would be 1130 at night. And for him, the night was young. And he would either go play an after party, a little club that had been booked earlier, take the stage and play till five o'clock in the morning. Or quite often we'd go into a recording studio and we would record all night and you come out, you know, when the sun is up. So I did, I did a lot of that with him on tour. Four years that uh, you spent long nights, early mornings, working your tail off. You also bumped into some remarkable people. We could spend the rest of our podcast talking about them. There's only one though, Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. It's a name that the vast majority of our listeners probably know, but for those who don't, would you share, uh, first of all, who he was? And and, and you had a beautiful conversation with him. So talk about that. Yeah, Miles Davis, the great Miles Davis. Uh, Let's start with the first adjective, genius. Undeniable genius. Uh, He was the son of, I believe his father was a dentist. I believe he he was from the Midwest of St. Louis, if I'm not mistaken. Miles Davis is the great jazz trumpeter who influenced so many musicians who followed. When Miles was coming up, the prominent form of jazz was bebop, you know, Charlie Parker and Bud Powell and Dexter Gordon. But Miles, with his album, The Birth of the Cool, took us out of bebop and into a new style of jazz. And once Miles took us there, we never went back. He, he profoundly influenced jazz music. Miles uh, had a great respect for Prince, a real love for Prince. So uh, I was working for Prince in the late 80s. And one day, uh, one day Prince called me at home and he said, Miles is coming over for dinner. He's coming to the house for dinner. And uh, I need these tapes pulled because after dinner, Prince was going to take him down to the home studio and just play some songs and see if Miles would want any of these Prince tracks to take and then finish up on his own. So he told me which titles to pull from the vault. And I did. I came to the house and I had these tapes there and I'm waiting in the home studio at Prince's home in Chanhassen. And up above me in the dining room, I could hear three men having dinner. And it was Prince and Miles and Prince's dad, John Nelson. Prince invited John because Prince was quiet and shy. He wasn't much of a conversationalist. And uh, he knew that his dad, John and Miles, about the same age, they'd have a lot to talk about. So anyway, Prince came trotting downstairs right after dinner and Miles and John Nelson followed him. And they came down the stairs, the two older gentlemen, and Miles parked himself right in front of me with his back to me. And he's facing John Nelson and they're talking about pants. And John Nelson is telling Miles, you know, I like those pants you got. And Miles is saying, they both talk like this. Miles is saying, what pants? What pants are they talking about? Those pants you got, the striped pants. I don't have striped pants. Yeah, you do. I've seen you use striped pants. What's striped pants? Yeah, I've seen you in striped pants. And they're going back and forth. He says, where did you see me in striped pants? On TV. Where are TV? At the Grammys. And they're going back and forth about whether or not these pants exist. And all of a sudden, without warning, Miles spins around. He puts his face, this really intense face, big eyes, put his face right in front of my face. And he just stood there and he was a rather slight man. He was slender, not much taller than me. And I'm five, eight, about that height, put his face right in front of my face. And he said, yes, I do. They're made out of eel, like in Vietnam. And I just held my face right there. And I said, eel, 
like in Vietnam, like those words don't go together. And then <laughs> he started just firing off questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? How long you been here? I don't remember the other questions, but it was bam, 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 bam. And I stood stock still and I held my face right next to his and I answered his questions. And then all of a sudden he said, you musician? And I said, no. He said, that's okay. Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. And he turned around and that was the end of it. Tell me and what I, that means. Some of the best yeah, musicians I know aren't musicians. I pondered that for years, but I've spoken with other people who played with Miles and they told me that sometimes he would say to his musicians, play, play like a non-musician. Yeah. What that means is music is an expression of life and life is not perfect it's mm. simple and it's complex it's robust and it's fragile it smells sweet and it stinks it's dirty mm. and it's clean life is more than what music is so if you're expressing life as a musician you need to remember a lot of people are non-musicians you need to play like a three-year-old would play if a three-year-old could, or like a 97-year-old would sing if a 97-year-old had a strong voice. You need to express life, life. Yeah. And that must encompass naive performance gestures. It must encompass naive thinking. It must encompass rule breaking. The non-musician like me, I don't have any training in Western music tonality. I know what it is on a cognitive level. I, 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 I don't know what it is instinctually. So what would I do if I had an instrument in my hands and wanted to express myself musically? I'd do whatever I could, and it's going to involve a lot of coloring outside the lines, someone who doesn't know the rules. So when Miles said, some of the best musicians I know are not musicians, I think he meant it two ways. The great musicians understand how a non-musician thinks and a non-musician understands music on some level. Man, there's a lot there. So you are clearly a great musician and you help bring forward the work of other great musicians for the rest of us. You've worked with some of the biggest artists, best bands out there, Bare Naked Ladies, who I loved growing up. It's been one week since you looked at me. Rusted Roots, whose CD I got stuck in my CD player as a freshman in college. I was thinking about today and preparing for the podcast and getting ready to interview you about those two guys in particular. But it made me think like my kids know those people mm. because I listened to them during my formative years. Mm. My, my parents introduced me to the Temptations. They introduced me to the Beatles and the Beach Boys because that's who they listened to in their formative years. My grandparents introduced me to Glenn Miller and some of the big bands because that's yes. who they listened to in their formative years. What is it about our adolescence that we hear music during those years that we then listen to not only during those years, but into our 20s, 30s, and for the rest of our years? Mm, yeah, that's such a sweet thing. So the great scientist Robert Sapolsky, he's also a great writer, has, wrote a book a few years ago called Behave, the biology of humans at our best and worst behaviors. I think I got the subtitle wrong. But anyway, he writes something that's chilling to every parent. He writes about how uh, the adolescent brain 
hasn't finished tightening all the bolts <laughs> and putting in all the fasteners. The adolescent brain is such a work in progress. And there's, uh, there, there's some rather chilling data that shows that in the teenage brain, not in the adult brain, but in the teenage brain, if you ask a teenager, what do you think about yourself? And then I'll also ask them, and what do you think others think about you? It turns out, if you look at this in an fMRI scanner, those two areas of brain activity are the same, not in adults, but in teenagers. So in other words, to a teenager, what you believe other people think of you is who you think you are. Mm. So your own self-identity is fragile and unformed and loose and flexible and far, far from grounded or established. So when you're struggling in your teenage years, when you're struggling with romance and with your place in the social hierarchy and your relationship with your parents and your self-identity, where do you turn for intel? Where do you turn for knowledge on how to navigate these rough waters? Music is a great companion because that singer can show you, here's the attitude you need to have when you go into school tomorrow. Here are the words you need to flirt with that guy or flirt with that girl. Here's how you should think about your parents. Here's how you should think about your siblings. Here's your role in life. You get to, as they say, try on the clothing of someone else when you're listening to your favorite musical artist. You get to imagine what it's like to be them through their melodies and their rhythms and their lyrics and their vocal performances. So when you've had a rough time and you put that music on and that music makes you feel better, what happens to us when someone takes care of us when we're hurting? We bond to them, just like Happy Together by Flo and Eddie. They were there for me. They were the dog when I was hurting. <laughs> I will so love sad. them my whole life. You will right. never convince me that Flo and Eddie aren't geniuses. They took care of me when I was hurting. And, and, and this can cause these emotional bonds that persist throughout your life. Now, if you're working in music or, or musician of any kind, or you write songs, of course, your taste is going to grow and develop because you're motivated to make money by knowing about music. So you're going to keep pursuing new styles. But if you don't work in music, if music is merely your companion, not something you're married to, it's going to be your friend. Mm. Why not go with those friends that you know? Why not go with those lifelong friends? Um, that's generally when we bond the strongest emotionally to music. Susan, we, we have seven rapid fire questions we always wrap our podcast with. But before we get to those seven, I, I do have two questions I want to ask of you. You've had a very unusual journey professionally, almost like in reverse order. You experienced life before you went back and got education. Mm -hmm. I think you went back in your mid-30s to college. You became a freshman, uh, what, 15 years or so after I became a freshman. And many I, was, others I, was, I was 44 when oh I was gosh. a freshman. 44, yeah. Yeah, so a, a different upbringing. Talk about that. What, what's the value of experiencing life first and then getting education? You know, I'm so glad I did it that way. Uh, uh, I do have regrets, of course. I got my PhD when I was 52, which meant I'd have a short and probably not very impactful science career. <laughs> you know, how much, how much work, how much work can I do? You know, if you get that PhD at 52, but 
going to college a little bit later in life is is great. You don't have the social pressures. You don't have to fit in with the other kids. You don't have the pressure of dating and your self-identity is well established. You're not worried about that. So uh, you're so grateful to be there. It's your own damn money that you're spending on it. Uh, so you're, you, you know the value of that education a little bit better. I anticipated that the professors wouldn't like having an older student. And I found out that was, that was totally wrong. They appreciate someone who's a front row sitter and actually pays attention and is really grateful for that education they're getting. It was, they say that college is the best years of your life. And for me, it was the best years of my life. I loved it. People have heard our conversation today and our passion for music and certainly your passion for not only music, but life. Uh, you wrote a book recently called This Is What It Sounds Like. At its core, what is that book about? It is about your and my and our listener profiles. It's how each one of us has a unique listener profile that is as unique as our fingerprints, as unique as our taste in food or fashion. It's about how that listener profile forms and why your record collection may be very diverse because there are so many different ways in which music can uh, light up your sweet spots. Your sweet spots are a constellation of seven, at least seven, there may be more, seven regions of your brain that can get a treat, a little hit. <laughs> opiates or uh, dopamine right. from from music listening so that's what it's about it's about your listener profile not mine your listener profile you, you challenge us many authors when they write books will write things like uh, okay after you read this go outside and look at the leaves uh, write this down and for most readers we turn the page and just keep reading we don't actually do you challenged us as we progress through this book listen to this music mm -hmm. and then you put forward songs to listen to as we progress I actually did it. And I'm so grateful I did because you introduced me to music I had never heard before, like the Shags that candidly, I hope I never hear again, <laughs> but also Marvin Gaye and oh. so many others. I had a blast reading and listening to this is what it sounds like. So I appreciate that. It's worthy of checking out. We do have seven questions we wrap every conversation mm -hmm. with. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. So our first question is, what has been the most influential, I normally ask book, in your case, I'm going to ask album that you've ever listened to. So what's been the most influential album that you've ever listened to? Uh, this might be surprising, but it's actually Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. And the reason is... That record was um, probably the most important concept album. And a concept album isn't concerned with singles. It's concerned with the album as the mm. art object. It came out in that era when uh, singles were less important and albums started to become more important right at the dawn of the 70s. And so in terms of actual influence of my, my style and my concept of what I was doing in the studio, Dark Side of the Moon got me to regard uh, the album as king. I love the fact that a, a relatively soft-spoken, brilliant scientist can jam. I just think that <laughs> it's like so cool. It's this confluence of seemingly different things coming together brilliantly. It's very cool. And I also love the fact that you love various types of music. 
It's not just one genre. It's really all of them. That's mm. a positive characteristic. Speaking of positive characteristics, what is one positive characteristic that you possessed as a young girl growing up in Anaheim that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, goodness. This is something that is grossly uh, undervalued, underrated. I write about it in the last chapter of the book, daydreaming. All children do it naturally. Children spend their time just daydreaming, lost in their own heads. And um, that's kind of disparaged as an adult behavior. We, we tend to put down people who, uh, who daydream, who fantasize, who mind wander, adults who do this. Um, we shouldn't do that mm. because daydreaming is, is a, a vital instigator of actual creativity. If you want to be creative, you need to have your head in the clouds. You need to take your brain off its leash and let it go wherever it wants to go and just watch where it goes. Right. Where it goes, that's who you are. That's what you want. That's you. Susan, if you had a house fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing, just one item, what would you return safely with? Gosh, uh, you're asking me questions that I have to answer spontaneously and not practically, and this is good. Um, the first thing that came to mind is a picture of uh, my beloved dog. Uh, she, she's passed away. She's no longer with us, you know, died of old age. But my Gina, my little Boston Terrier, she was, uh, as far as I was concerned, she she was the the star that my my world revolved around. She was the love of my life. I, I had her longer. I had her 16 years longer than I had my own mother. She, she was the love of my life. I'd, I'd take a, a picture of my Gina. Thank you. If, if you could sit on a bench with anyone, living or deceased, on a gorgeous day and have a long, wonderful conversation, who do you want to be seated directly next <laughs> oh, to? Oh, 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 there's so many. Oh, there's so many. It's so hard. I'm just going to go ahead and go with the original Chuck D, um, Charles Darwin. Wow. What's your first question for Darwin? When did you know? When did you know? What do you think the response is? I don't know. I mean, maybe it was when he was on the Galapagos or some point. What was it like in that moment when you knew, yeah, I'm pretty damn sure this is how it works. And you knew that your idea of evolution was going to be challenged and that it went against what people believed about cre creation and divine intervention and all that. What did that feel like at that moment when you knew this is true and I'm going to have to write about it? Wow. What, what is the best advice you've ever received? This came to me instantly, but um, I told you earlier, I worked for Crosby, Stills and Nash. It was actually Graham Nash and David Crosby who owned the studio and, and uh, Nash and I were, were, were walking through the courtyard and he said something about what young people have to do to, to get into this business. And I remember he said, knock on 20 doors because only one of them will open. And I remember that's weird. He said 20 and not 10. Normally, you know, 10 is the easy number, knock on 10 doors because nine of them won't open. He was saying 19 will not open. And that always stuck with me, meaning again, you're, you're not going to get everything that you want. You simply won't. So knock on the door that leads to the thing you want the most, because that's your best shot. Mm. 
go for the thing you want the most. The other doors may not open. Going back in time a little bit, if you could whisper some advice to that 20 year old version of yourself, leaving the LA forum, returning to that husband, what advice would you give her? I suppose I want to say something about courage, but um, I might want to say, um, trust yourself, trust yourself. Mm. You're holding a better hand than you might realize. Uh, you don't have, you don't have the best hand at the table. You got a good hand. Play those cards. You, you trust yourself. You, you can do this. Dr. Susan Rogers, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? She worked her ass off. <laughs> <laughs> she had no ass at the end of her life. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I think the characteristic that I possess that is most, um, that I credit with any success I've had is I, I work really, really hard. I'm, I'm a good facilitator for visionaries like Prince or David Byrne or other folks like that. If, if it needs to be built, I can, I can help build it. And um, that's, uh, I think that's my superpower. I work really hard. <laughs> I think you work very hard. I also think you are a phenomenal musician, phenomenal author. And uh, I just thank you for spending some of your day with us today. My friends, that is Dr. Susan Rogers. The book is called This Is What It Sounds Like. It is worthy. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift it is. Live inspired. Well, my friends, there were so many takeaways from today's conversation, many of them being about the work she did with some of the most iconic artists of all time. But rather than the brag sheet of who she worked with, it's two of the quotes that Susan dropped I wrote down. Here's number one. Be the dog. Be the dog. Susan shared that sometimes you don't have to solve the problem. Just be bold enough to sit next to someone with the problem. That's enough. Just be the dog. And the second is this. You don't always get the dream you want. Sometimes you get the dream you didn't even know you had. Well, my friends, if you enjoyed hearing how a female not only showed up, but gained respect and influence in a male-dominated field, you'll love the conversation that we had with Evie Pomporis. As a former U.S. Secret Service Special Agent, Evie has worked protective detail for four U.S. presidents and is trained by the Department of Defense in the art and in the science, you ready for this, of lie detection, human behavior, and cognitive influence conversation with EV will spark an inspiration for you to find the strongest fearless version of yourself you will love it if you've not yet heard it check it out at episode 228 or just cruise on over to john o'leary inspires.com forward slash podcast my friends thanks for tuning in to our channel our podcast our community we're grateful for you we're grateful we get to jam out with you so for this time and until next time this is john o'leary and today is your day what a gift sing loud and live inspired at Kelly companies it is no secret that they believe in the power of people in an effort to help their Achilleans get to know each other a little bit better they decided to launch the who do you know campaign? The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. 
These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.